Welcome to Breaking Free. I'm Rania Kurdi, a transformational life coach, comedian, and mother of two. And you can join me weekly to hear some intimate self-reflections and conversations with inspirational friends and guests from all around the world, sharing what they needed to break free from in order to live a life of purpose. Today's episode is special, special to me, because not only am I recording from my home in Jordan, but I've asked my father to be my guest. He had big dreams as a child and found ways to achieve them no matter how impossible they seemed. Sharing his story with you on Breaking Free is a beautiful example of how you can truly manifest the life you want by making it a reality in your thoughts and emotions first and then slowly watching how that energy unfolds in the universe. So today I have the pleasure of introducing you to Captain Khalid Al-Kurdi, my dad, also known as Baba in Arabic. Baba, it's lovely to be here with you today, and I'd love for you to start by telling us when the dream started and what the dream actually was. Well, I think about something like 11 to 12, you know, we were just kids, you know, going to school, and we were living in an area opposite to the British RAF, Royal Air Force, and they were using airplane, of course, not very advanced in that time, you know, big jet or something. Uh, and we are so close, so I used to go and watch them around uh, the fence, you know, just to look. And uh, it was so interesting. Uh, and I was wondering how is, how is this pilot can know his way to go from here to England and travel and so on. That was where it trusted me, really. And I used to watch it daily, practically, if I don't have school. So, Baba, born in Jordan in 1936, give us an idea of what your childhood was like, the early days. It was uh, a combination of things, really. We were, we were a big family, six brothers and uh, three sisters, and a uh, little bit different than the local people because my, my mother was Circassian from Russia, from Tbilisi, Georgia. My father is from Kurdistan. So we were two different cultures in the family. And my mother doesn't speak good, good Arabic either. She used to say for the he, she, and for the she, he. <laughs> and we were laughing, you know. So uh, the same thing, because we are many and uh, the family are poor, uh, my father was just just uh, in the police department, and we were actually before this area in, in, in Marka, we were tra- living in different area in Erbil and Salt. Wherever the army move him or the police department move him, we go there. That's why we were each one of us were was born in different city. Uh, but this is the situation. It was uh, poverty, little poverty, but as a childhood. Uh, was was really not bad, you know. We had friends around. Uh, we don't have many Circassian or Kurdish around us except us, because in that time there were very few. And uh, we were. Uh, I used to like to play football too, you know. But the thing is, we can't afford the football. You know, my family cannot really afford to go and buy football. So we used to uh, make make a football from cloth, you know, rag. You know, we sew it up and we make it as a football and we play. So this is generally how our our childhood. And my, my pleasure was the time I go and watch the airplane. That was really what what really the pleasure for my life that time. That's all the, the pleasure I had that time. So how was it possible from where you were then to be where you are now? 
to someone who's an airline pilot, speaks English, has travelled the world. How did you make that happen? It's quite a long, long, long journey, really, from childhood to where I reach, you know, as an aviator. Now, what happened is we start going to school usually, you know, primary school, first grade, and so on and so And we used to walk to the, to the school. So the, the school, they used to teach us English at the fourth grade until seventh grade. So I have three years of English language, which is practically nothing really, and basic thing, you know. So at seventh grade, they used to give us a matriculation exam, you know. Uh, and if you fail, you cannot continue the school. You have to pass, even though I was a top student. I, I, I was always the first in the class, all the way to the seventh grade. So when I went to the matriculation exam, exam it was really, really a shock for me. And I failed, you see. So failing that, you cannot go back to school again. You see what I mean? Uh, and uh, even though, even if I pass, I probably will, will quit school another year or two because we don't have the money to continue. I have to go and work and help the family. So I finished seventh grade. That's all what I get in schooling. And the English language was very, very, very basic, you know. And then uh, what next we have to do is just go and uh, find a job to, to work. So I found a factory uh, in the way to Amman, the capital city, which they produce cigarettes, you know. And I used to go there and uh, get a job there with little money, you know. Uh, something like half a dinar a day or something, just to wrap up the cigarette and put them in the bucket, you know. That was my first job, actually, and I laugh when I remember it, you know, because I don't smoke. <laughs> All my family are really in the military, all of them, including my grandmother. Now, I went to the army, and they put me in a training center, which is run by a British uh, brigadier. In that time, all the Jordanian army, high position, run by a British. And uh, the Jordanian uh, officers, only regiment standard, and the rest is all British. So, so this, uh, this brigadier, you know, Weldon, his name, I still remember that, with his stick under his arm, you know, very interesting, tick, 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 we have to salute him. So I spent three months training there, which they told us how to, you know, maneuver as a soldier, how to shoot gun, how to throw the grenade. You know, it's a full course, you know. And after that, they sort of divide you and send you to different, uh, uh, different regiment. Uh, luckily, my brother, my oldest brother, he was already in the army and something like a lieutenant or a captain, three star, something like that. So he, he wanted me to learn a trade in the army, not just to be an infantry. So uh, he, he told me, you know, to, uh, he arranged for me to go to a city called Zerka, which all the Jordanian camps are there, or the military there. So he arranged with the commander there to take me and give me a course. So they did, you know. So I went there for about a year. That was a better life in a way than the training of three months, you know. And they trained us how to be uh, electronic technician in a word, how to fix the radio uh, of the army, the wireless of the army, and how to use Morse code, and so on. And to me, it was really, really nice change. But I am a good technician person. I like to fiddle with technical thing, you know. So I did it very well. Uh, 
And then when I graduate, you know, after one year, they don't give you license, they don't give you nothing, you know. Um, so my brother, again, he arranged with the commander to transfer me to his unit in Palestine, in a city called Nablus. So I finished the course and I went there, and I was there in that regiment uh, called Al-Katib uh, al-Ashri, the 10 regiment in Arab and English. So I stayed there working in Palestine, that was in uh, 51, something like this, you know, all the way. So Baba, can you share that funny story of what you did when you discovered that somebody was stealing some tools from your toolkit? Well, that was actually in, uh, in, the, in the training course, you see what I mean? When they were in the training course, you know, you have each one of us a table in front of us, and your radio is there, and your toolkit is next to you, you see? So I was very organized, you know, putting my everything neat. So I find out that the other, the other soldiers, they were stealing part of my, uh, of my tools. And the tools, I signed for it, you know, if I miss something, I have to pay for it, and I cannot afford it, you know. My salary was for dinner a month. Uh, so what I did, I made a trick, you know, the, the radio set is very huge. It's a Canadian call uh, set 19. It used to be work with the British Army and the Canadian Army. And it has a really uh, a powerful, powerful current in it, you see. So I used to connect, you know, under the table, the wire uh, from it, from that set to my toolbox. And when I have to go to the you know, outside or come back. Any, anyone who comes to touch my toolbox, the electricity, it's already connected to them. But not the deadly electricity, AC current, is DC current, which is just shock you, you know. And that's how I, that's why they stay away from me. <laughs> For sure. So how did you start learning English while you were still in the army so that it would get you closer to your dream of becoming an airline pilot? Actually, learning English a little bit, again, more experience in it during my uh, signal corp training because it was all English terms, you see. And then I used to read a lot of magazines and uh, books, you know, in English to learn more, you know, and dictionary. And I, I learned, I, I taught myself in a way, you know. So uh, the thing is, uh, in, in, uh, in the army, I, I wasn't really uh, happy with that life. I wanted better, better than this. And I remember something happened with your brother that made your time in the army even harder. Can you tell us about that? My brother, I had a little misunderstanding with him. Uh, uh, The army, uh, uh, the officer in charge in the signal corps received the telegram from a man from the headquarters. And then he asked me, he said, take this and give it to your brother because he is in charge. He He should read it. And I didn't think of it of going, uh, you know, dressed up, you know, so I forget to put my hat. So I went to the office and he was there with another another captain sitting. Uh, and uh, I, I came in, I didn't salute, you know, the two officers, which I should, you know. And then I, I, I gave him the telegram. I told him this telegram is for you. And then all of a sudden he was very furious. He's a strong tough officer, disciplined, very disciplined. And he looked at me and uh, he told me off because uh, I am not dressed. I did not salute the officer. Uh, so I was really in a difficult situation. And then uh, he called the duty officer and the officer came in. Yes, sir. 
So he told him, he said, take the corporal, I was a corporal, take the corporal and confine him in, uh, in the special place and bring him to me tomorrow for, uh, for trial, you know. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, he took me, you know. The, then we, we went. They put me in that room, confined there. The officer was surprised, you know. He said, what happened? I said, I did not have my full uniform. He was angry. Uh, next day, he called me. Uh, he took me to the uh, t- trial. The punishment was uh, delay of promotion for me and uh, sending me out to the front line where, where with, the, with, the, with the fighting forces, right in the Israeli line. And in that time, you know, the West Bank was still with Jordan. And even though the salary, uh, uh, the, the, the punishment for me to cut, to cut the salary for one month, which I used to spend from the 12 dinar to my father, seven, eight dinar to help the family. But he divided for three months, each month for, for, for dinar. Anyway, so I packed up my clothes, my everything, and then went in a truck all the way to a city called Qibya. Now, Qibya is a very famous city in Palestine. Uh, I stay there. I'm not a fighter uh, uh, soldier there, but I am in charge of the signal corps to fix the radio and the telephone line and everything to do with electronic for that regiment. So the Jordanian captain there who is in charge, he told me where to go, where to stay. Then very, very interesting thing that that line, that city, Kibya, the opposite officer, uh, the Israeli opposite officer with us, uh, against us, was Ariel Sharon. He was a major in that time. That was 1953. He was a major in that time, which later became the prime minister and the head of the army and very famous, very famous man. And in fact, uh, everybody knows in history, who knows history, uh, that he later on, after I'd been transferred from there, he, was, he moved in and completely massacred that city. That was, that was a painful thing, really. So luckily, I wasn't there, you see. What happened is I spent six, seven months there. During that time, my brother was promoted to a major. And because he was a good qualified officer, they transferred him, transferred him to Amman, to the military training center, the huge one, the, the one run by that British commander. And they set up a school for cadets, for officer cadets, and they put him in charge. So the other officers in the regiment there where I was, they felt sorry for me. They transferred me back to, to Nablus. And a few months after that, Ariel Sharon have attacked that city and completely destroyed it. And it was a massacre. That's what saved my life. Is that when you left the army? I said, I have to get out of the army, but uh, to, to go out and work in other country, which there, there are, but you need, you need a, a license, you need a certificate. The army doesn't give me certificate, but I'm a good technician. So what I did, I joined by correspondence for a university in Cairo. And I took a full course for a year and a half in electronic, very advanced. And I really, really enjoyed it. So I, I finished the course and I done the, the exam. You see, I passed and they issued me a diploma in electronics which is good for me because if I have to leave the army, then I can find a job with my certificate. So uh, later on, I quit the army. In 1956, I quit the Jordanian army uh, after spending five years. 
And then I, in that time, the Gulf area, Kuwait and Qatar and those uh, Saudi Arabia were just brand new country raising up with economy of the oil. That was just the discovering of the, of the oil. So they need badly a lot of technician, you know. So I, 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 went, I went from, uh, from, uh, from Jordan to Qatar. Doha. I had a friend there who got me a visa, so I went there, and I worked there in Qatar. I worked for the Emir of Qatar and the palace. I used to fix radios and communication, and uh, and uh, then I spent three years there. It was hard, hard life, always in the desert. Uh, I spent three years there, but I start feeling good. At least I have money now. You know, I have a bank account. You see. And then after three years, I went to Kuwait. I heard that Kuwait is more advanced. So I went to Kuwait and I joined the Kuwaiti army. And I started working for the Kuwaiti army. Uh, and I did work for another three years. So I spent the six years in the Gulf, which I made something like $25,000, that is That is big money that time, you see. But what I did, I decided now I have to go to America and be a pilot. Uh, my dream is getting really close. So in Kuwait, there was nothing there, uh, no television, no cinemas, no nothing. There were two, three restaurants. So what I'm going to do with, with my spare time? So I wrote a flight school in Florida called Embry-Riddle. I said, would you please send me the course completely uh, to, to, to my address, I would like to come and be a pilot, but I would like to uh, study it while I'm here. So they did, you know, and that really nice tip I did, you know. So it was like magic reading those books, but at least I learned something like 20 percent, you see. So uh, 61, I decided to return back because I started getting older and it's not good for aviation, you know. Uh, I was 27. Uh, so, so I came back to Amman and uh, missing the family, you know, I never returned back to Jordan within six years. Everybody was happy to see me. So my brother, the oldest brother, the one who sent me to the front line, <laughs> he was the commander of the Royal Brigade of King Hussein. He established it. Uh, he was full, full colonel. My other brother, which was two years, two years older than me, uh, he's a pilot. He became the Air Force commander. He was lieutenant colonel. And then the, the family gathered together, you know, and uh, they were asking me, you know, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to Los Angeles, to America. Uh, they were surprised, really. He said, well, what for? I said, well, I want to learn to be a commercial pilot. So they said, well, this is very difficult, very expensive, and we have no money to help you. I said, well, I will manage myself, you know. And then my, old, my, my eldest brother, he said, look, let me let me ask my friend here. He had he had uh, the British, the American uh, military attaché in Jordan, William Fiverr. He was with him in a course in America because he done a staff college course. My brother there, you see. So he told me he said, let me ask, you know, uh, you come Friday for lunch, uh, and my friend is coming with his family, and let me ask him. I said okay. So I. I came in, and William Fiber is such a nice man, really came with his family and his kids. So he said, let me talk to Khalid, you know. So he took me aside, and he told me, he said, tell me about your life. So I gave him a briefing. He said, very interesting. And then he called my brother. He said, Mike, let him go. This guy will, 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 will succeed, you know. <laughs> so that was convincing for him. So I traveled, really, and I left uh, after two months. I spent two months in Jordan. And I uh, luckily... 
Uh, I went in, 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 uh, in Jordanian Air Force. By, the, by this time, the RAF is gone, you see, and Jordanian Air Force was established completely. But Wing Commander Bennett was the last one to leave. Uh, so my brother Saleh, you know, he told me, he said, look, uh, I, I'm sending you with this airplane to London, and then from London you go to America. I said, that's great. So I went on a beautiful trip, and that trip took about a week, you know, because small airplane, they landed in Cyprus, in Rhodes, in Brindisi in Italy, and then in Nice, in Monte Carlo, and then to Gatwick. And that was a very interesting trip for me, coming from the Gulf, all of a sudden, traveling as a VIP with a wing commander British, and he knows that I'm going to learn flying, you know, so he gave me a lot of advice, which I appreciate. So he said, okay, Khalid, you are in your own now. We landed in the, in the Air Force Base in Gatwick. So I went to the train station. I got a ticket. First time in my life outside Jordan to Europe. And I was dreaming when I was a little boy to see England, London. What is London? You know, something big to us. So I took the train and I arrived to London. I took uh, in a small hotel. I couldn't afford big hotel, of course. And then my, my Air Force brother, he called the embassy, the military attaché. There is a British lady there. She is secretary there. So he told her, please, you know, my brother will come and see you to arrange for his ticket. And he doesn't know much about this thing. You know, he wants to go to America. So I went next day to the attaché. I asked about that lady. They sent me there. I told her. She said, okay, that's fine. Your brother told me. How are you going to travel? I said, uh, I'm going to go by boats. She said, what? I said, by boats. She said, oh my God, it's a long way. I said, well, I want to save money, you know. So she said, okay. She booked me with a very famous company called Conard Line. So I departed from Liverpool and I went there. It was very interesting uh, trip. It took about nine, day, nine days, yes, to New York. One day they stopped uh, in Canada somewhere to refueling, whatever it is. And then we continued to New York. So I spent about four or five days in New York. I stayed in YMCA. And then uh, I, I took the bus trip from New York to Los Angeles. It took about five, six days, something like this. But it was interesting because I've seen all across America. So I ended up in Los Angeles. In Los Angeles, I went to that flight school. Uh, and I told them that I would like to live with a family. So they gave me this address. I went to them, and it turned to be a wonderful family. Just, I lived there for four and a half years. I did find a job with a very nice company. I stayed with them all the way. The company is um, auto part warehouse, where they have uh, all mechanical thing. And they treated me so nicely. I was a hard worker. Uh, the owner and the boss there, Mr. Lovoni, uh, gave me all the help. He used to really help me a lot. They put me in the magazine as, as uh, the only Arab and Jordanian <laughs> worker for them. Then something unexpected happened when I came home. Uh, the family there, they told me that we have received a telephone call uh, from an employee from the State Department who was looking after the, the, the team who came to, uh, to Washington. And he asked that, uh, I'd like to speak to Mr. Cordy, his brother is here. So the brother, my brother told me that he mentioned to King Hussein that he would like to come to Los Angeles, uh, that I had a brother there studying. And the king studying what? He said, pilot. He said, interesting. Go and see him and bring him back with you. I would like to see him. He briefed me, my brother. He said, you will see the king at 11 o'clock. Don't stay too long. He will, whatever he talked to you when he finished, 
thank him and leave, you know, because he had a press conference. So I went in the morning at 11 o'clock. His Majesty was there with the team uh, who was with him, delegation, uh, beside my brother. And then uh, he was kind enough, you know, to receive me and a very pleasant person. First time I ever met him. He is a very highly qualified pilot. So he told me, he said, tell me about your aviation training. Where are you now? What are you flying? Now, he knows I am supporting myself, you know. And then uh, he, he, he knows aviation is too expensive. And then he told me, okay, now when you graduate, I would like to tell you that we have an airline to the first time in Jordan called Alia. You see, now it's Royal Jordanian Airline. I said, oh, that's interesting, your majesty, Mabrook. You know, he said, thank you. And he said, your brother is the vice chairman. And he had another gentleman with him in the team who was the chairman. And then he said, when you finish your training, you get your license, you have a job. So I, I, I thank him for deceiving me. And then he said, wait a minute. And he handed me a check of $10,000. That was really big help for me, you see. Now, I went back to school. I finished in 66. In April 66, I got my license as a commercial pilot license from the FAA, which is the Federal Aviation Agency. And nice to mention this, the head of that agency was Mr. Najib Al-Halabi, who is the father of Queen Noor of Jordan. And he is a very highly qualified pilot. Later on, he became the chairman of Pan Am. So I got my license, I flew back to Jordan with Pan Am, and I visited the cockpit in that time, which is 707. That's the one later on I became, I became a pilot in it. And this is how it happened. And I ended up in, uh, in Jordan, uh, applied. Uh, my paper is already done in Royal Jordanian. So I joined them. There was a small company, we were about seven, eight first officer, co-pilot, about 10 captain. And then they told me, said, look, they don't have jet aircraft that time. They have DC-7s, but they want to replace them, actually, and bring a jet aircraft. So the chief pilot told me, we don't want to train you now because we're going to change all the airplane. We're going to send you to France to be trained on a jet caravel, a French jet, beautiful airplane. So I said, okay, so I flew with them for three, four months, observer, and then they sent me to Toulouse. I got a course in Toulouse. I learned how to fly the jet caravel. I came back and I was hired as a first officer in the company with a fantastic uh, privilege. What I love most about this story, Baba, is the fact that you were practicing the law of manifestation without even knowing it. You made the dreams of your younger self becoming an airline pilot a reality. You did that by believing it would happen, by reading every English magazine you could find, by studying the flight manuals before America was even a possibility, let alone getting into flight school. So when the universe responded by giving you an unexpected offer by His Majesty King Hussein to join a newly set up airline and you finally sat in that cockpit, what was that moment like for you? Well, it is really uh, a beautiful dream had been accomplished. And the most interesting things in aviation, the day I went in that airplane on the training alone as a solo. That was something. The first time in my life in Los Angeles, in international city like this, with thousands of airplanes, to fly that airplane in my own. That was what they call solo. And I did three takeoff, three landing, and they cut my T-shirt, and they 
threw water on me and it was a big celebration. That is a feeling. That's a feeling. When I returned back, you know, when I was in the army, now I am a pilot in Jordan. Now, I graduate and came, joined Royal Jordanian, uh, which is Alia called at that time. And then they sent me to France. I was trained in a big jet. And then after so many years, they sent me again to America to, to be trained in the Boeing 707, which is a very big airplane. That's the one I flew back with Pan Am when I graduate. Now I became a pilot in 707. I had thousands of hours in it. And then I continue flying uh, until 72. Three almost 72, something like, end of 72, I remember. So what happened, my brother in the Air Force, who was a major general, he, re- he retired, he left the Air Force. King Hussein, he sent him as an ambassador to Iran. And Iran during the Shah was very, very big country, very big airline. So I found it interesting. Royal Jordanian was a small airline and a small route. We don't go to America. We don't go to this and that. So I decided to go. I asked my brother, I would like to fly with Iran Air. Uh, he got me an offer. I flew and I started flying with uh, Iran Air International. And it was a big, big airline, a very good life, international route. And I was treated beautifully, really. So I stayed there, and my brother stayed five years, then he returned back in Jordan, again as an Air Force commander, and he was vice chairman of Royal Jordanian. And then uh, I continued staying there because I was happy, really, there. And you were just born a few months before that in England, and uh, then you moved with uh, your mom to rent the house, living as a family. But the revolution happened, after the Shah left the country, and I sent you with your mom to Jordan right away before the airport was closed. And the airport was closed for about four or five months. No one leaves, no one in, no one out. I was alone there. So I applied for a job with Singapore Airline. They accepted me. And then uh, in one way or another, His Majesty King Hussein knew about this, and he ordered me to cancel the trip cancel the contract and rejoin Royal Jordan, and that's what happened. So I rejoined Royal Jordanian Air, Airline. It was quite a quite little bit bigger than before, and I kept flying um, until my retirement. They, ah, they sent me to a TriStar course. You know, I went in a TriStar, and I took you with me, remember? You were seven years old. I flew the TriStar all the way until 1996, when I became 60, and that was the age of retirement in uh, in that time. Tell us about the other dream you tried to achieve before retiring. Well, that was a very big, 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 big dream, you know. And I felt like I am going to set up an airline, see. So that was, that was not being a pilot only, to set up an airline. So I started searching here and there, and I ended up with... Uh, with a captain from Portugal who was flying with us, Captain Lopez, and he introduced me to high-level high people in the island of Madeira in Portugal, beautiful island. He said, the, uh, the island badly need an airline and will give you the political support. So we traveled a few times there, and they presented me with all the help I need, you see. So I started the project. And I hired an uh, aviation uh, consultant from England, Mr. John Trubbett. And uh, we spent two years setting up the airline. 
including the visibility study. Boeing company came on the line and made a study for me technical. The Airbus came in and they start start competing with the with the Boeing to get in and take the project. And I was really in the middle of it. And we spent quite a lot of money. So we set up a company as a holding company in England called Air Madeira PLC uh, with a capital of two million uh, pound paid capital 1.4 million and we start setting up uh, the company finished the visibility study made a big opening in Madeira covered by the press and the TV and now the study required for a first class airline because it's a very touristic air, a very touristic area Madeira and I was competing with with, with the big airline but I decided with the with the visibility study uh, to set up with my, the help of my consultant to set up the company with 27 Boeing 757 brand new 40 million each in that time that's 80 and we need 20 million working capital so Mr. Travati said, now we have to look for finance for the company. I had good contact in Saudi Arabia through some far relative uh, uh, Saudis and they are, he's a pilot. So I managed to get a loan of $100 million for 10 years. They, are, they asked me to present them with a first-class bank guarantee, triple A. So we worked with the consultant in London and we managed to get Merrill Lynch. Merrill Lynch worked out the, the project and they accepted to put the guarantee. They start communicating with the Saudi. While we're doing there, uh, in 2nd of August, I was traveling to Jeddah. The, the bank called me to come and sign the paper to release the money after Merrill Lynch opened an account for me in Cayman Island. So I was traveling to Indonesia, back to Jeddah. In the morning, I got my paper and my bag and I went to the bank. In that time, the bank manager and the people, they were in, in a very difficult situation. So I said, what's the matter? They said, well, cancel the project. We cannot offer you the money. I said, why? They said, Saddam Hussein had entered Kuwait. And that was the end of it. I lost the money. I couldn't continue. And we have a holding company in England. Later on, we closed it. And that was a dream I couldn't accomplish. The name of the company Air Madeira PLC. Mm, I remember how painful that time was for you. However, you continued flying with RJ till you retired and you were offered then to do something new. What was it, Baba? They asked me to establish a crew center for Royal Jordanian. So I did. I opened a beautiful ultra-modern crew center where His Majesty and Her Majesty Queen Noor uh, they inaugurated the opening of the of the center. So I did enjoy uh, one year when I had, and then I retired completely. You know. And now you've been retired quite a few years. What would you say you miss most about flying? Actually, Rania, is the traveling, the lifestyle. You know, lifestyle is so beautiful. You know, traveling from one country to another country, and you learn a lot as if you're going to university. This is the most interesting thing that really, that's the life I want. That's the ambition I want, you know, because I have a big ambition. The sky is the limit. So I accomplished it. I'm very proud of myself. So as someone who was able to achieve his dreams and his big goals, what would you tell your younger self if you met him I now? would tell him the experience I have. I will tell him, number one, education, education, and education. And then I will tell him, stick to your principle and ideas and hard work and there is nothing impossible to accomplish in life if you really wanted it this is what uh, what i will advise him 
and this advice I give it to every young generation, that hard work, it gets you where you are. There is nothing impossible in life. And education and education and education is the most important thing. That will open the gate of happiness for you in life. Thank you, Baba, so much for sharing your story on my podcast, Aleen, Breaking Baba. Free. Yeah, it's a pleasure, really. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Breaking Free, please share it with your friends or on your social media platforms. And of course, I'd really love it if you can subscribe, rate or review the show. You can reach me directly at raniakurdi.com if you would like to ask a question, comment on what you heard today or find out how I can support you on your journey.